Steve Jackson Games for Nordcast number four, November 3rd, 2006. Welcome back, Fenord fans. If you've been counting along at home, you know it's now time for episode four. The majority of this episode is Ask Dr. Crom. We told you about it last time, and we've had a pretty good response in the Ask Dr. Crom thread on the forums, so he and Paul sat down to tackle a few of those questions. Unfortunately, Crom doesn't have every single answer in the entire world, so Thomas Weigel, the E23 manager, comes in later, and he fills us in on the E23 angles. There's another shameless plug from Warehouse 23 coming up. And the beginnings of our Essen report. I know that sounds a bit confusing, but it will all become clearer a little bit later. Here's Ask Dr. Crom. Welcome to Dr. Crom's laboratory. We're here with Sean, Dr. Crom Punch, and we are taking your questions via our forums. Our first question today is from Luther. Uh, he writes, Great Crom, what are the plans for GURPS Bestiary? What kinds of animals, beasts, and monsters is it going to include? Will it be part catalog, part toolkit, or what? Okay, well, we've got a pretty good handle on Bestiary right now. We have a writer and outline, so I'll give you some idea of the details. Obviously, it might change a little bit between now and when we sign a contract when the guy writes the book. Um, yeah, the plan is mainly for it to be a catalog, a mix of realistic and imaginary creatures, present-day animals, prehistoric ones in the realistic end, and in the imaginary end, horror, fantasy monsters, giant animals, things of this kind. So pretty much a full spectrum, largely uh, seen in our various third edition bestiaries, uh, you could think of it as a best of in a lot of ways, but there'll be a lot of new content. Some of these creatures will get complete templates. Others will get uh, only monster or beast stats, whatever you want to call them. And some will get something in between, a, a set of point costs with some highlight abilities, but not a full set. And the idea there is uh, some creatures are useful for PCs or NPCs, so you're going to want a template. Others really are mostly opposition, so you only really need the statistics. And then there's the ones in the middle that might be alternate forms or allies for a player character. And for those, you need a point cost. So we're going to cover the ground pretty broadly in terms of both what we're including and how we're including it. But we'll discuss conversions between the various forms of stats and so on. So it'll be pretty complete treatment from any point of view. There will, however, be rules expansions. It's not completely a catalog. Um, for example, the basic set covers shape-shifting in pretty great detail, but we're going to expand on it a bit more, uh, include a few new options, a few omitted options for shape-shifting, notably uh, involuntary shape-shifting, which isn't covered in the basic set. Uh, likewise, with the giant animals, there will be some notes on how to make your own giant animals, starting with a set of regular-sized animal statistics. Uh, it won't be a huge chapter or anything like that, probably a box or two, but it'll be there. Uh, and the big rules edition will be in the form of meta traits and ready-made abilities. And by those I mean similar things similar to the ones you found in powers. Uh, those who aren't familiar with powers, meta traits in the basic set are collections of abilities put together to represent larger, broader concepts, more or less the shortcuts. Powers does much the same thing with many of its abilities, combining certain complicated traits into a single trait that has an easy name and single point cost. And by ready-made abilities, I mean something similar, an advantage that's already been modified to behave a certain way. So, for example, there'll be uh, various mini-templates you could add to almost any creature you're creating to add the right number of arms or the right set of background abilities, what have you. And there'll be things like venoms and, and 
dangerous fire breath and so on that you can add to your monsters. And these will be all listed out with point costs and breakdowns. So a GM who wants to create a monster on a go can quickly do so. And also uh, the monsters and animals in the book previous to these chapter rules will draw upon these so the entries can be simplified, a little space can be saved, hopefully we make room for a few more stats and a few more entries. And that pretty much sums it up for now, subject to whatever changes might come in the future, which hopefully won't be too great. All right, question number two is from Cauldron, who writes, I noticed there's a few scenarios on E23 for download as ready-made adventures. Are we going to see a lot more of this on E23? If so, are we going to see any of this spill over into a bound book like we had in 3rd edition? Well, uh, as far as I know, our plans for adventures, and I'm saying as far as I know because I'm not the ultimate authority on these things, but the plans are that they'll mainly be E23 items. We have no current plans to publish adventures in print. This has mostly got to do with sales. In the past, they didn't sell particularly well, and these books being 240 pages currently are rather large and expensive, so we have to focus on things that will sell well. So right now, anyway, the plan is to publish this on E23. Hopefully we'll be able to get Thomas on here sometime to speak about E23 and defend himself. But I'm not going to rule out the possibility of adventures in future books as part of a book or part of the material in a book uh, if the author wants it or if we decide that a collection would sell because a particular setting or genre would support it. That's about as far out in the limb as I'm willing to go on that one. And we will take a moment to get a hold of Thomas at some point and uh, pin him down on a few answers on the idea of adventures in E23 and what else he's got planned for E23 a little bit later in the Fnordcast. Now we'll move on to question number three, which is from Toad Killer Dog, our friend and your co-author of GURPS Martial Arts, Peter Del Orto. His question is, GURPS 4th Edition has seen the release of basic set, powers, and magic, and the upcoming martial arts. What other core books can we expect to see? What other major rules-heavy expansions are planned for the GURPS line? Are we looking primarily at more catalogs, such as biotech, ultratech, and bestiary? Genres like fantasy? Or settings like Banestorm, Infinite Worlds, and Interstellar Wars? If so, which of those can we expect the most of? Peter's got a lot of questions. Peter always has a lot of questions, but as my co-author, I will humor him. Um, this is the crystal ball question. I expected this one in day one, and it'll be in every every segment I'm, I'm answering questions on from now until eternity, I suspect. Right now, looking at our crystal ball, it looks as if martial arts will be the last of the core rules expansions, at least in the near term. There might be more more distant rules expansions. No doubt there will be. I've got a few in mind, but uh, that's not what I'm willing to commit to. But that said, Thaumatology, which will be coming out sometime after martial arts, will also be very rules-heavy and could be seen as a core expansion by some. I would call it an expansion on a core expansion, but it is pure rules. It's kind of to GURPS magic what biotech is to GURPS powers in the sense that it takes one particular aspect of an existing core rule book and kind of blows it up and looks at it in great detail. Um, after that, I would say... Our focus in the near future anyway, and possibly the medium future, is indeed going to be catalogs. It's going to be, well, ultra-tech was mentioned, high-tech, I'm looking at high-tech right now, in fact. Uh, spaceships, we got planned, I'm working on the outline with David Pulver. It'll be a bunch of ready-made spacecraft. Uh, and bestiary, which, well, I just discussed that in detail, so obviously I know what's going on there. Those are the ones I feel comfortable talking about. There's a few others I've got in mind, but uh, I would say that ultra-tech, well, almost ready for the printer. You're going to see it soon. High tech, looking at it now, as I said, and got outlines for the other two. After that, 
it gets too crystal ball like as for genres and settings um yeah they'll still sort of get mixed in and uh spice up the rules the expansions and expansions i mentioned the catalogs but they won't be the major focus still we're looking to get at least one or two out in the next few years um the one that I'm really enthusiastic about is a conspiracy genre book. It'll be out in the next couple of years. We've got a good author lined up for that. He's working on outline right now. If all goes well, uh, I think it'll be a really excellent book, kind of like a fourth edition answer to Illuminati and some of the Illuminati-related uh, content we had. And that's about as, yeah, that's as much fortune-telling as I'm willing to do. But like I said, I've got a few other solid ideas, but without authors and outlines, I'm not going to commit to them just yet. Hope that answers your questions, Peter. Uh, on to question four, which is brought to us by Turhan's Bay Company. Concerning the far future of GURPS, once the semi-core books, the tech books, bestiary, martial arts, are out of the way, what do you think will be next? Genre books like fourth edition versions of espionage and swashbucklers? Template and character catalogs like the 4E editions of Warriors, Wizards, Who's Who, and Villains? Original campaign worlds, historicals, something new and different? Now, this question is slightly different from the question that Peter asked earlier, uh, as this is not so much a what's coming up as a what direction you want to take the line in, right? Yeah, and that's more crystal ball work, I won't lie, but it is a different kind of crystal ball work because I don't need to make any promises here. Well, in an ideal world, just kind of the same ideal world where I write 300,000, 400,000 words a book probably, but, you know, in this ideal world where I live when I'm, when I'm being a creative as opposed to uh, being being hard-nosed hard uh, editor of text, I think once we get the core rules and catalogs of the way, I'd like to focus on genres and settings that are really broad use to the average gamer, uh, in particular to GMs who want to run common campaign types because once they've got these tools, these rules and lists of items, they still need settings and ideas for their own settings. Some examples, I'd love to see a military book. It's all about military gaming. We actually did one of those for third edition as such. Another one would be a modern day setting. Again, we never really did it as such. And those sort of overlap in a way because in third edition we had these books like Special Ops and Cops and Espionage and they kind of touched on the modern in the sense they touched on modern topical matter and they also shaded into the military because there was always this promise of violence, if not outright violence, and frequently guys with guns involved. Not always military guys with guns, but we're talking about action gaming here, and the distinction between cop and soldier get pretty fine in action movies, let's just say. And I, I think those were good approaches, but I think uh, equally good approach would be to actually tackle head-on military, tackle head-on the modern world, because we have 240 pages of book now, and we can afford to do that. And previously, we could. Those are examples of where I like to go in terms of genre. Now, there was a lot in there about template collections, character catalogs, things like that. I think those are best left in E23 still, not printed. There's a good reason for that, and it's got nothing to do with I don't think they'll sell very well. It's actually this. Um, the E23 format, being PDF, can be printed out. And that's incredibly useful for templates and for NPCs. Uh, in the case of templates, the GM only has to print out the templates he wants to show his players, and to be blunt, he can make lots of copies and show them instead of handing around one book and let it get tattered and torn as the people make their characters up. Likewise, with NPCs, you don't really need a big book in front of you to use one NPC. Uh, all that's going to do is fray your book, mangle it. Being able to, to print off the two pages or one page of the PDF that contains the NPC you actually plan to use that game session is incredibly useful. So I think that 
printed books aren't optimal for these things, and I'd like to keep them in E23 for that reason alone. And then there's the question of historicals. Um, historicals traditionally don't sell as well as they might. Some of them do, but even though everybody says, oh, I buy GURPS historical books and use them for my other games, the reality seems to be people don't, or at least none of the quantities that can justify 240 pages most of the time. So I'm not sure we're going to risk the expense uh, involved there as a general rule, unless we come up with a historical setting that's incredibly broad or valuable. I mean, the modern-day book I mentioned earlier is an example. It's history being made, but it's essentially real world and, 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 and real history uh, with the license of action movie sort of not so subtly pasted on top, I suspect. But E23, on the other hand, might carry more historical material because page length exact sales volume and so on, they're less of a factor there. They're certainly factors, but they don't dominate our planning. So we might be able to uh, justify them more. And obviously um, something could come up that we didn't foresee and suddenly become very interesting. And as for something new and different, we're always open to something new or different. A few authors have proposed things which sound fairly new or different. Whether they get published or not depends a lot on uh, whether the authors can commit to sensible contract terms and reasonable deadlines, really, is what it comes down to. Everything's dominated by the practicalities of hiring writers. So we'll see. As we mentioned earlier, we'll have Thomas in here a little bit later to peer into his crystal ball about what's going on with E23. But for now, we'll move on to question number six from Dryanda. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. A lot of skills are specific to tech level, yet I don't see different tech levels of the same skill compared to each other, apart from first aid, physician, and surgery. Are higher TL skills actually better? At the other end of the spectrum, why would someone with a TL skill like mathematics do less well when using it at a lower tech level than the one they trained at? Okay, well, it's another complicated question, a complicated answer. Um, these skills are all about working on or with equipment of some kind. And most value of the skill comes from the fact that higher tech level equipment is superior to lower tech level equipment. It's simple as that. So you can use or uh, repair or even invent equipment from those higher tech levels, then you're getting more use out of your higher tech level skill because that higher tech level equipment, as a general rule, is better in a very practical sense. You know, the guns shoot further, the lock picks pick higher tech locks, the locks keep out higher tech thieves and so on. So if you want the high tech skills uh, to go with that better tech, you invest in them. So you, you do get something out of them. It's just not always explicit. They also include, these higher tech level skills include understanding theory, the theory that goes with that high tech level. So with medical skills, it's obvious. I mean, you're getting better theory, I guess, the human body and disease and so on. So you've got this nice detailed set of rules that tell you how to apply that theory in the field and get great results, even with low tech equipment. You, know, you have a penalty, but you can use that. That's an example of how lower tech theory is not as good as higher tech theory, because the lower tech theory, when you apply it, produces less impressive results than the higher tech theory when you apply it. But medical skills have a nicely, now, you know, nicely defined set of rules, a clean set of tables. Other skills don't. That's mostly an issue of space. Uh, as released future groups books, there'll be more detailed tables and charts and rules indicating exactly what these high tech skills do beyond just letting you use high tech equipment. Uh, the higher tech skills will give better results in many cases. The second question that was kind of folded into the first there is whether higher tech skills, uh, would they work less efficiently at lower tech levels or whatever? They, they get a little penalty for being at a lower tech level some of the time, and that's when you're using them for practical purposes because the tools in question are lower tech level, and you're using a high tech level skill. You're used to higher tech level tools, like I just said. So 
of course, you're going to take a penalty. You try to do surgery with uh, medieval surgery gear, and you're, uh, say, a surgeon graduated last week from, from Harvard Medical School, you're going to have a major problem because you're not going to have the right tools available. The reason this gets a little shaky and probably actually triggered the question is that some skills, as I said before, have a, a pure theory element to them, too. And when you're using the pure theory aspect of the skill, it seems less obvious that there should be a penalty at lower tech levels because you don't really have tools. And I guess that in situations where tools aren't going to be used, you wouldn't want to apply that penalty. I'd agree. But the thing is that a lot of pure theory uses are surprisingly applied in practice. Um, you, you get this situation where, oh, yeah, it's pure theory to solve a mathematical problem or break a code or what have you. But really... It isn't pure theory. You ultimately always have an example you're working on, and usually you're doing your math with, or your your physics or your code breaking with a with a set of tools. And those tools can be slide rules, computers, pencil and paper. But if you've got a very complicated problem that typifies a really high tech level, uh, if you don't have the tools that go with the tech level, you're not going to be solving the problem. The theory evolves to meet those problems uh, to solve them. If I told a mathematician, for example, to use his tech level 8 math skill to solve tech level 3 math problems, he'd probably be able to do it just fine. But if he didn't have his tech level 8 tools, he might be surprisingly baffled. And sometimes those tools aren't obviously mechanical tools. They might actually be theoretical tools. If he doesn't allow to use the insights and innovations of five tech levels of mathematics to solve his problems, he uh, is going to have to solve them using just the tech level 3 math, just the tech level 3 understanding, then he's going to find himself rather limited because he's probably not going to have ta been taught those specific steps that were executed way back when and often considered erroneous. He's going to know how to do it using the modern techniques. So it's a real complicated answer. It requires a lot of GM judgment to decide whether it's pure theory and genuinely independent effect level, theory with a real application that should be penalized for theoretical tools, or a pure application, which uh, definitely involves physical tools and will definitely be a penalty if you don't have those tools present. Drya Unda has a follow-up question, and in it she quotes Phil Masters when he says, every skill is made up of a whole bundle of sub-skills, techniques, packages of knowledges, and areas of competence. The question is, so what are skills at high levels an abstraction of? Oh, okay. So we're getting into even more theoretical stuff, kind of like the point cost question. Um, well, Phil answered it fairly well, I'd say. I mean, we could go into, into details, but the world of the mind or the world of intelligent beings or whatever, ultimately, it's, it's, it's full of all kinds of uh, methodologies and really obscure areas of knowledge that uh, apply to very specific situations in many cases. What the game does is it kind of ties together the uh, things that are broadly similar. You know, if an area of knowledge or methodology relates to something and another area of knowledge and another methodology relates to something else, and those two somethings are gen generally alike or somewhat alike or even vaguely alike, uh, for the purpose of the game, if they're alike for the sake of a dramatic theme, they're going to be given a less abstract existence in the form of a skill. Uh, the skill represents all these abstractions in a very concrete form. And somebody who's good at the skill has more, uh, I guess you could say, more of these areas of knowledge, more of these methodologies to draw upon, a larger bank of resources to solve problems with. And what the game does is rather than saying, you know this, this, and not this other thing, it says uh, you adapt whatever you do know to the problem at hand. And so what your skill level presents is your 
ability to adapt the elements you have and the number of elements you've got uh, to a specific problems. The more elements you have, the less improvisation you have to do, and the better you're at improvising, the less you have to rely on previous knowledge. And either could represent what a high skill is, usually both together. And that explains why those of our high skill levels are also good at innovation, because they have more experience adapting a whole huge toolbox of things to a task, and or, and I, I'm using and or intentionally there, they have aptitude at synthesizing all kinds of really loose stuff together into a concrete solution that doesn't look like it's just cobbled together from bits and pieces. So, um, yeah, all of that is what a skill represents. And uh, I think that's a long-winded way of saying what Phil said. But maybe it'll give a little more insight into what we're thinking when we write down skills in a book. I think we touched on a few high points today. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to all of the questions that showed up on our forums, but we'll save those and we'll poke you again with them next time on Dr. Krom's Laboratory. A lamp from Poland inherits the MP3. Uh, hello, this is uh, Fox Barrett. I'm a Warehouse 23 clerk, and this is yet another shameless plug. Today I'm going to be talking to you about Vampire Prince of the City. It's a board game made by White Wolf Publishing, who you probably know makes the World of Darkness games, including Vampire. And this is the, uh, the board game version of their popular vampire role-playing game. The idea behind Vampire Prince of the City is that the current Prince of the City has gone away. He's mysteriously up and died. Nobody knows why, and nobody pretty much cares. And the reason they don't care is because you, the five players of the game, are the primogen of all the local clans, and you are now competing with each other to take control over this city. In order to conquer the city, you control different zones with influence, and whoever has the most control of the city after a certain time limit has been hit is uh, announced the new prince of the city and gets to control and rule and everything that that entails. The components in Prince of the City are pretty high quality. Uh, the board's really quality stock, the art on it, is the usual sort of gothic fare that you see in Vampire, but it's easy to make out what all the different city zones are. They're all color-coordinated, they're easy to read. The cards are a little crowded, but they're pretty functional. It comes with a little set of plastic miniatures to represent each of the primogen, and those are sculpted well, and, and there's the usual assortment of tokens that are made out of nice thick cardboard, so it's a, it's a sturdy game. Every turn in Vampire Prince of the City is made up of a number of different phases. The whole course of the game will usually take between four to nine turns, but each of those has six or seven phases individually, and every phase you go around the table and everybody performs a set of actions available to them in that given phase. Like in the influence phase, you can bid influence to control uh, a sector of the city like Chinatown or the docks or City Hall. And then during the challenge phase, you can do things like challenge events that have come up or you can challenge other primogen to contests to try and steal away resources or influence from them. One of my big draws with the game is that it's got this nice sort of wheeling and dealing mechanic. It lends itself well to people who can play diplomacy rather well, because the idea behind the game is that, like I said, you're trying to control a city, and the way you do that is by manipulating all these imaginary people on the board and your opponents around you, because you can form temporary alliances with people to go after another primogen, or you can team up to take events and split the uh, prestige that comes with completing those events and that kind of thing although you don't really have to hold to your word if you don't want to. I will admit it's, I don't want to say convoluted, but the, the rules are complicated. They take some time to learn, and the first game you play is probably going to take about two or three times as long as any subsequent game. Each phase does have a lot of steps in it, and you do have to figure out exactly what you're doing and 
there are a few scenarios where, well, if I've got this much influence and he's got that much influence, what are all my bonuses? But after a playthrough, by the fourth or fifth turn, you've really got it going, and the next game you're just flying through. And It's a five-player game. The time that it takes to play it scales uh, from about two hours for a short game to four, maybe five hours if you play a really long game. Uh, you could really conceivably play it for as long as you wanted. You just keep adding turns to it. Uh, it's a good way to kill an evening, though. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And now I hope you see why I think that, if you'll forgive a small pun, Vampire Prince of the City is a bloody good time. The Illuminati subverts the iguana. As Paul promised, we did track Thomas down, Thomas Weigel, our E23 manager. The first question was from Cauldron, and he was wondering about adventure modules, and that is pretty much an E23 thing, so Thomas... We do plan on seeing more adventure modules on E23. In fact, actually, you can consider this a solicitation for adventures uh, submissions, particularly anything in one of our main lines like Banestorm or Infinite Worlds. So that would be a yes. We do plan on having adventure modules on E23. Yes, I love adventure modules. Uh, anybody who wants to write one, please send a uh, submission to E23 at sjgames.com. And the second question was from Turhans Bay Company. And he wanted to know about the far future of GURPS from Krom. And Krom said that some of the far future things, like redoing the Warriors, Wizards, and Who's Who's books, might be E23 products. So we brought Thomas in to let him expound upon the the prophesied future of E23. Actually, we're looking at a lot of things for E23. And really, what goes on in E23 is anything that makes economic sense. And there's a lot of things that make economic sense for E23 that don't for a print product. Smaller genre books, uh, we're looking at a uh, supers book, possibly kind of a psychic powers book, all sorts of things like that. Catalogs of all sorts. That includes uh, character templates, equipment lists, spaceship lists, places and locations that you can plug into your campaign. Uh, we're also looking at mini settings, but there's nothing I can really comment on specifically there. Historicals, possibly. There's at least a couple that we are looking at and a couple that we are looking at publishing soonish. And uh, finally, just support for the main lines. Anything for GURPS Magic, for example, or GURPS Powers, which gets back into the catalog lists with power lists. And uh, that's pretty much it. Surprise us. That was Ask Dr. Crom with some help from Thomas Weigel. Thanks, Thomas. Next time, maybe Dr. Crom can answer all of his own questions, but if anybody else needs to help him with the answers, we'll bring him in. Snoopy is the dinosaur. Michael Jordan avoids servants of the back 40. Essenspiel is the biggest convention in Europe, and we had hoped to get some audio from Ross Jepson, our sales manager, who was our official attendee, but he... Uh, didn't actually do anything fun. He was doing all the sales manager duties, getting us new translations and uh, distributor stuff. For the next Nordcast, we'll get a hold of a couple of MIBs who were on the floor and actually played some games and saw what was going on, but they're in different time zones living in Europe and all, so we won't be able to have that audio for you today. But uh, Ross was kind of productive. He got us a couple of new distributors, one in Poland, one in Czechoslovakia, and one in Russia, and set up a couple of Munchkin translation deals. Those of you who speak Polish, Swedish, Finnish, Icelandic, or Norwegian, you'll be able to play Munchkin in, in that tongue in uh, 2008, looks like. Ross also spotted a couple of products that he pointed out to us, the Ultra Deluxe Deluxe Illuminati box set from Pegasus, 
is a huge set with lots of pretty components. Once we get a copy of that in the offices here in Austin, we will tear it apart and figure out what we can learn from it. The other thing that he spotted and pointed out to us was a uh, Munchkin box set. Uh, this is a wooden box with a sliding lid. Munchkin images burned into the sides and the top. Looks really cool. Uh, I've seen some pictures on our forums. If it's as large as it looks, it should be able to hold all of our expansions all in one box, which is pretty cool. Again, once we get a look at that here in Austin, we'll see what we can learn from that and uh, maybe even have a U.S. version of it pretty soon. And that's the uh, official Ross Jepson version of the Essen report. Tune in next episode for the uh, MIB on the floor version. That's the end of episode four. Episode five is just around the corner. We'll give you some rapid fire, shameless plug and play reports from our Halloween game day. We'll track down those European MIBs who went to Essen. And Steve's in Europe right now. He'll be back from Luca, Italy next week and tell us all about being a special guest at a con. Until then, may the secret masters ignore you. The Fenordcast is a production of Steve Jackson Games, and all our music is performed and written by Tom Smith at TomSmithOnline.com. <laughs>